0: I'm here today with Todd Gibby. This is another guest who I've been looking forward to for a long time to have on road to CEO because he's had some very interesting experiences at the highest level of education technology startups like IntelliWorks, Effect, you know, others that I'm sure we're gonna get into. But he was also a part of the Blackboard team during its hyper growth phase and he's currently running Lock8 Partners, which he founded and which invests in SaaS companies. I'm sure we're gonna dig into that as well. So a lot to talk about. Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Well,
1: thanks for having me, great to be here.
0: So there's a lot of places that I'd love to go in this conversation, but why don't we just start at the beginning? How did your career begin? (laughs) Slowly, (laughs) really
1: slowly. Like a lot of people coming out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I just, I didn't really feel prepared. My undergraduate degree wasn't necessarily super applicable and it just took me a while. Um, For four years, I did two different finance jobs, uh, one uh, in more corporate finance, another sort of more in trading on Wall Street. Didn't like that at all. Uh, It just wasn't for me. Was lucky to get into business school, got kind of excited by that realized I really liked this whole operating thing, the idea of making something and delivering it to a consumer uh, or a customer. And uh, But I joined a big company right out of business school. And that also wasn't for me. So it wasn't until, gosh, I was probably out of undergrad for 10 years before I got into my first early stage software business and immediately thought, this is for me. And that's when things kind of started to click. But it took a decade of kind of bouncing around Um, and then once that happened, just, uh, it's sort of been one, one early stage SaaS business to another, and it's been super fun.
0: And was that first startup, was that Blackboard?
1: Yeah, actually there was one before that. That's a whole other story that was short lived, mostly because I needed to learn how to be a good employee. Um, so that was a good learning experience, growth, growth opportunity, as they say, but yeah, uh more or less blackboard was the first one it was 1999 um i had met the founders i had met michael Chase and matt patinsky and uh, they could be very persuasive to come join the business it was about 35 people at the time and about 2 million in, in recurring revenue wow and uh relative to where i had been that i seemed big i now know that's really tiny and relative to what it became it was super tiny so that was in 1999 i stayed for seven years and by the time i left we had gone public. We were not quite 200 million, 200 million in ARR. And I think about a thousand people. It was, it was amazing. It's an awesome ride.
0: So they, about a hundred times the revenue. Exactly. That's pretty yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the type of story a lot of people hope to have when they're joining a startup, obviously. So I imagine that was a pretty uh, fortunate thing to be able to, to stay with a startup from you know, the beginning to the IPO and beyond a little
1: totally i mean i just feel so fortunate to have had that experience i think it just you know the hyper speed in terms of lessons learned and things to which you got exposed to and you know at that time in that business it was sort of a situation where however much responsibility you were willing to take on and, and prepared to handle you were given it and for me in that time uh, particularly after having felt like i had not wasted, but kind of cast about for about a decade prior to that, I was ready and, um, it was amazing. And so you got more and more scale, which in and of itself, I think teaches a lot of lessons. But the other thing that was just incredible about that was blackboard at that time was totally comfortable with handing over the reins to a different function Mm -hmm. from where you had been sort of working previously. And, um, The best example I have of that is after never having held a sales role, never having carried a quota uh, after a few years of Blackboard, they basically said, Hey, (laughs) Michael Jason, the founder said, "Uh, look, I need somebody to oversee sales for about a quarter. You're going to be terrible at it, but like, you know, I won't fire you and I'll find something else to do as soon as we find somebody in, you know, in, in a quarter or a month. And, um, I think that lasted like three and a half years. I was was running global sales (laughs) during the time at which we went public and needed to hit all our quarterly numbers. And, um, if I remember correctly, we had gone from about 70 million in ARR to about 135 million in ARR while I was in that role, never having, you know, had that functional experience previously. So Uh that again, just super grateful for that.
0: So what's, what's the lesson from that? Because most of the time as, CEOs, we want to hire people who have experience, you know in certain areas, and yet and yet sometimes the best thing to do is to find the right person, whether they've got experience or not. you know what 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 lesson did you take from that? A
1: lot of lessons, honestly, and it's certainly influenced everything I've done since then. and our approach to hiring in Lock eight, which we'll certainly get to later, I believe, um, I think the first one is want to really matters. Want to. You know, somebody, for me, the desire to do a a function, to do a job is so much more important than someone having done it previously. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean if they've done it previously that they don't want to, but, you know, really, if that person has, you know, great executive function, great time management, a a willingness to learn, humility, coachability, and handles themselves with intentionality about how they're going to go about it and really, really wants to succeed. Man, that's powerful. Yeah. That's a really good company. You're setting yourself in a really good
0: place. So, once Blackboard got to a certain scale, you know, at post IPO, I think you decided you were ready for something else. Uh, what happened then?
1: Yeah. Um, so, at the, uh, like I said, we had gone from a small company to what then seemed like a pretty big company. And I realized two things. One, I had, I had more fun in the early years. Like I really liked the earlier stage, the, the super formative business building, smaller team, more agile, uh, shorter feedback loops in terms of the decisions you made uh, as to whether they were working or not and course correcting. I, I really liked that, number one. And number two, I, I had it in me that I wanted to be a CEO. I really did. Like whether I was prepared or not, I think it's debatable, but, but whether I wanted to or not was, was not, I I wanted that opportunity. And um, I had had an amazing experience at Blackboard and felt like the time was right for me to go do that. So that was really what led to stepping out.
0: So did you know before Blackboard that you ultimately wanted to be a CEO or was that something you learned there?
1: (laughs) No, like I said, I was just hoping to find a job that I could be good at and 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 keep for a while. So so no, I really didn't. It was it was in being it, being at Blackboard and seeing what good looked like and and seeing the kinds of growth that organizations could experience and the kind of culture you could build and the impact you could have on an industry. Um, and just seeing the impact that leadership could have on an organization, that's what got me. And being close to it and increasingly close to it, that, uh, that's what really got me excited. The, the other thing that I, that I really ought to have said earlier when I was talking about sort of hiring for want to and so forth is there's also no substitute for pent-up demand. And we had that at Blackboard. You know, there was the early days of, of e-education and man, the market was great and over time markets mature and it gets tougher, but, but that was helpful too, because running fast mattered a lot in that environment and you could make mistakes and still recover. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't just sort of loop back around to that and say that also, you know, I think was one of the things that made it okay to hire people that didn't necessarily have functional expertise.
0: That's an interesting point. Yeah. Pro- pro- maybe especially in a role like sales to a certain extent, I mean, you need the expertise, you need to, to learn fast. I'm I'm positive, but you know, But I, I could see how that pent-up demand would make it a, forgi- a forgiving environment, perhaps.
1: Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Now, I, I... Uh, yeah. Well, one thing that I, I sort of breezed over, but I think it's worth going back to, because I think it's applicable to a lot of different uh, skills Was this notion of handling oneself with intentionality. And, and with that salesman, first off, I was super scared because I didn't know what I was stepping into and then whether I was going to be any good at it. And that was really intimidating. But what I decided is I was like, okay, the things that are going to make this successful are number one, we've got a good sales team. I need to figure out a way to minimize, eliminate the distractions for them, give them comp plans at the very beginning of the period, make their commission statements, super easy to read, provide them with the training. Don't leave positions unfilled for a long time. Like just yeah. make the trains run on time was sort of like, do that number one um number two executive selling matters and i was and i had been a general manager for a part of the business so i kind of knew how all the pieces mm-hmm. fit together and being able to go out and help people close the big deals was sort of like job two um and then job three was getting a really tight handle on being able to predict accurately with confidence um and giving other people confidence what the you know what the ultimate performance was going to be to have an accurate forecast and then, and then live up to that. If you could do those three things, I decided you're going to be able to stay in the job for a while. And um, I'm not saying those were the three things or there couldn't have been three other things. It did give me some pretty good sort of guardrails, uh, you know, to to, to sort of keep me in in lane.
0: Yeah. I I know for me, I, at the first company that I, I, Co founded, I remember, you know, and I had no experience in business at the time. And, you know, I remember
1: you from those days.
0: You do. (laughs) Alumni FI. (laughs) Alumni FI. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you provided excellent advice and guidance that I'll always be grateful for. I know that, and I don't remember if you and I talked about this at the time, but I would hear and learn about product market fit and how much demand there should be for a new product. And it's one thing to, to know all that academically. And it's another thing to be a part of a company that has a product where there's intense demand for it. You know, you're not needing to make phone calls. You're not needing to, you know, to, to do as much with, with the, you know, with, with the lead nurture and the, the demand creation, because you've got a healthy amount of, in you know of of inbound inquiries and you know that it was it was really eye-opening for me to do my second company after that first one where you know I think it, it you know you get a taste of what what it's like to have that inbound you know lead generation just kind of happening no doubt no um, doubt.
1: The hard, the hard times make you appreciate the good ones. They for sure. do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I have to say, I'm grateful for both because you're right. You wouldn't appreciate it necessarily if you didn't understand that it's not always that way. So one thing we, we haven't, we we maybe glossed over for a moment is um it, what was the role of mentors at Blackboard? You know, was that, did you get good guidance and help internally? Did you have people outside of Blackboard, you know, how, cause you're having to learn at a, you know, but, incredibly fast rate. How were you doing that?
1: Yeah, there was so much learning. Um so the answer is yes, there was lots of mentorship. Now, was there like a formal mentorship program? And did, you know was it sort of super easy to access? No. I, I think it was a fast moving place. Um some would say with sharp elbows. And so you sort of needed to chart your path. Now um I was really fortunate to have a close working relationship with Michael Chason, the CEO. Um, a person with whom we are, we are very, very, very different, um, and so I wouldn't describe our relationship as a mentor-mentee relationship. But man, I learned a ton just watch, watching him operate, seeing how he processed things, how he made decisions. Like it was, it was just a tutorial every single day. It was one basket of of sort of tutorial or or, or mentorship and learning. There was a lot of peer-to-peer learning going on. I mean, there was just some fantastic sort of ongoing, you know, I think about people like Robert Morton. I think about people like Denise Hazelhorst. And man, just the opportunity to walk down the hall and speak with smart, engaged folks who were really thinking about what the future could look like and how to get there um, on a really informal basis was, was awesome. I don't honestly think I really appreciated that as much i don't think i was as conscious about seeking out learning um and really kind of understanding that man the second i stop learning this it's it's the second i become you know obsolete and so just having a real sense of urgency and trying to structure to optimize for that i don't think that came until later but um at a place like that during that time with that kind of trajectory um it came to you
0: yeah yeah. Um, and I sometimes wonder, and, and I imagine now with lock eight, where you're involved with more than just one company at a time, um, do you see that that type of culture just kind of happens at startups? Or does it have to be cultivated? Because, you know, at, at start, at most of the early stage startups that I've been involved with, if the right people are involved, they have a good attitude about sharing, they know that that you're, that The company's only going to succeed if everybody is doing their absolute best and is helped along, you know, but what's your, what's your thought on that? Is that, is that something that, that you need to look for in a, in a small startup company, or do you feel like it's always going to be there?
1: Yeah, we, we have a, uh, I don't want to say motto, but but I guess something that we repeat a lot and a belief a strong held belief, which is made, not found. Good businesses are made, not found. And I think with respect to this question of culture, it's true even more so. So I don't I don't believe that cultures just sort of spontaneously, you know, arise and that they're good or bad, or no, you gotta work at it. It's like any relationship or set of relationships, you really need to work at it. Um, and, and we do, you know, we do in the lock eight businesses. Our thought is that the leadership team ultimately is going to set the tone for the culture, and our job as investors is to really support the CEO and the leadership in being intentional about doing that. Mm -hmm. And so what that ends up looking like tactically is we spent a lot of time in the first year of our ownership period, of our hold period, really focused on that. Um, answering what we call the existential questions. Who are we? What business are we, win- are we in? What's our brand promise? What are our guiding principles? What are our company values? And like really beating that up. There's a there's a um, a quote from Patrick Lencioni, Uh, I don't know if you know that author, but great, great author, Patrick Lencioni has written a bunch of really, really good books on this topic. And, and he's got a statement that's something like, if you're not willing to pay the price uh, to make hard decisions relating to your guiding principles, don't bother having them don't bother setting them up. And I, and I totally agree with that. Um, And, and so that's one of the ways that we say, okay, we're going to really take time to think about what the guiding principles are with each of these businesses, but then we're going to make hard decisions about them. Like we're going to empower a group of people in every business that every quarter, they're going to actually go do an audit and say like, are we living up to these guiding principles? How are we supporting? How are we undermining? And we look at across baskets. We say like, okay, from the policy perspective, Yes, no, maybe what's working, what's not from an incentive perspective, communication norm, physical space, less important now, but physical space, work environment, you know, all of those. So that's a way yeah. that we try to support that. And then, you know, I don't want to get too long-winded here, but just to put a placeholder and maybe we'll come back to it is then we have a whole lot of work that we do to support those CEOs so that they can have the, the white space and the ability to, to really focus on empowering their teams so that they can run, so, so, so they can run. Again, yeah, we have sort I, of a that's, saying that's like, let them run, let them run, let people run. And and that takes work.
0: I would definitely like to come back to that. And and before we move on, though, um, when you say that you empower in a, a group to do an audit, is that an internal group at the company itself?
1: Yeah, yes, it is. And, and let me be really... Sure. Uh, 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 forthright and say in some companies it's more formal than in other companies yeah. um, but in companies where i was the ceo we would specifically set up a group uh often we called it like a culture committee maybe like for people who are interested in this you can sign up you can participate in this and we'd actually ask them we try to do it quarterly but you know life gets in the way but you do yeah. it periodically where you're like hey these are our guiding principles can you just do do a look around and and if there's things that that we're doing that we should stop or not doing that we should start or things that we are doing and doing well and we should continue like please identify those and that's actually the exercise that they go do they then make recommendations typically to the leadership team and that's really where the opportunities are for for you to live and and live your values and stand up to them and, and demonstrate you know or And sometimes not sometimes the things are just too too big of a reach in that moment but to try to work toward them um silly example but we had some company values uh at board effect where it was it was really about like creating a great place to work and and you know sort of work-life balance and being healthy and um the people on the sport desk were using handheld phones. They were literally like holding their phones like like this all day. They had giant cricks in their neck. And it was like, hey, we went and spent 400 bucks on, you know, on, on really nice headsets and people's minds were blown. And they were like, wow, okay, we're really actually serious about this stuff. Doesn't take much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I, and I, I'm curious if that is, um I, I feel like it's somewhat uncommon for for SaaS companies to really make that kind of an effort in, in culture and you know because the focus of course is the product in so many ways i mean the product is is so i mean that's it's everything um and I, you know i so i i, I sometimes wonder if if uh, product-oriented companies do that less than service-oriented companies but you know i, I don't know
1: i don't either
0: i, I think don't either great, I, I think it's great whoever does it frankly because i i mean i think you know i mean it to me it it well, to me, I think a services company, like my company is a services business, you know, it's an ad agency, you know, the people are the product. If, people, if the people aren't happy, then the company falls apart. Uh, so from my perspective, it's a huge mistake on the services side to ignore it, uh, to ignore culture and to, to ignore the people in that sense. The, on, the, on the product side, I think it's equally important, but it can sometimes sometimes maybe get ignored more easily.
1: It's a great point. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to try to get more than anecdotal evidence on that point. Um, What I can say, and again, anecdotally, what I feel like I've observed over time is it's a question of how much intentionality you have about culture. And what I mean is historically we talked about the blackboard days and at that time, particularly prior to 2001, um, what culture meant was fun. What culture meant Mm. was sort of having a cool office. It meant having good parties. It meant, you know, swag. It It meant a lot of things that I think we've sort of moved beyond. And I'm not saying those things don't still have some influence, but I think it's a lot more now about creating an environment for people to be successful providing them with the opportunity to advance their skills and setting them free if they want to move on and go on to other opportunities and to sort of really it's 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 not about beanbags and foosball at Mm -hmm. all and Mm -hmm. i think where where you can run into trouble whether it's that assumption or other assumptions making assumptions about what really matters to people versus really trying to sort of inspect it and adapt accordingly
0: yeah so, let's turn back to uh, your your post-blackboard experience. so you you had your first experience as CEO after in the days after Blackboard. How did that opportunity come about?
1: Um, it came about actually through some investors in Blackboard. So they had you know they had had a really good experience with Blackboard and the Edtech sector in general. They had invested in some other edtech businesses. And then one of them, they asked me to sit on the board for. And then eventually said, "Hey, we'd like you to sort of step in and, and become CEO." And uh, you know i was I was um, I was swayed by that. I was sort of like I was I was excited to have that opportunity. I honestly don't think I did an adequate job of of diligence. I don't think i I, I asked some questions about sort of the income statement. I don't think I did enough job, good enough job of really understanding the trajectory of the company, the mm-hmm. current, Balance sheet, the cash flow, the sort of the the, um, the cap table. I just didn't really do my homework, frankly. And I can And I went from a situation that was like a total rocket ship blackboard to like this is hard. This is really, really, really hard. With you know a situation that had been getting a little bit long in the tooth, and we were certainly heading into a difficult economic time. It was right around. It was that was two thousand seven. So we were heading right into two thousand eight, yeah. two thousand nine financial crisis. And um, super hard because it was it was uh, it just required a lot of grit. And I guess if Blackboard taught me how to manage hypergrowth and to really try to optimize that circumstance, this was more about how do you be resourceful? How do you do a lot with a little? How yeah. do you recruit talented people and put them in a position to be successful when you don't actually can't pay them a lot? And your and your your stock isn't necessarily going to be you know you can't sort of offer them this is going to be Google or Uber like it's like you got to be super resourceful and in that particular case what we ended up doing is saying I, I hired a few really good senior leaders and then we said look we're going to go for a youth movement I don't know if I'm even allowed to say that but we're going to go for less experienced people uh, right out of college. And they're going to be excited about the opportunity and we're going to mentor the heck out of them. And they're going to have a lot of want to, as I said before, and we're going to mess up a lot, but, um, but that's sort of the, that's sort of the way we gotta, we gotta make it work. Um, yeah. and so that's what we did. And it, it took a while. It took, um, it took a while, but ultimately we ended up kind of finding our footing, finding product market fit. We were able to continue to make the product better and better and better and, and sort of broader and deeper. And as a result, our total adjustable market got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we had to start really small. And then we kind of over time, um, you know, we had we were having a much bigger presence in our market. And I Mm -hmm. think we specifically did a good job of making ourselves seem bigger Mm -hmm. and pose problems, to the big player in the space and one of our key competitors and over time i think they got excited about what we were doing and our technology and our team and they acquired us and that was a really good outcome
0: oh very interesting okay so and and this company was called IntelliWorks and was it was yeah. and, and it sold to hobson's which is a massive education technology company um what what yeah. did intell what was the intelliworks product exactly
1: yeah it was we called it at the time a crm for higher education um and it was it was actually built on top of the Zoho system, which I, I don't mm. know if you're familiar with yeah. Zoho or CRM, which is sort of an alternative to Salesforce. It was really an enrollment management solution. It was to help colleges and universities uh, attract students, market to students, engage them, and then help them sort of manage through the application process and then ultimately um, try to try to increase the yield of these colleges, which we know now, but this was really at the beginning, super competitive, super, yeah. super competitive to get enrollments. And so we were, I don't want to say we were on the bleeding edge of that, but we were sort of at the beginning of that. And and the thing that we sort of really touted, I think it was true, was that we were the first SAS enrollment management solution for higher education. And so specifically what I what I was saying before is, our solution was pretty narrow to start. And so we had to start by going, again, we sort of took a big step back and said, we can't go sell big R1 universities because just, they'll just, we'll either not make the sale or it'll be a bad fit and we can't deliver. So we ended up selling to continuing education, professional and continuing education programs, which again, now are real profit centers for universities at the time. They were sort of forgotten. And so we sort of aimed at a very, very narrow part of universities. And then from that, we were able to sort of get into grad schools. And then from that, we were able to get into, you know, smaller undergrad um, colleges. And then ultimately kind of expanded the TAM, you know, as we were able to get more sophisticated a Very interesting. Forward.
0: Yeah very yeah so at the time you were doing that I was doing alumni fidelity which was on kind of the other end of it it was doing it was helping universities identify new donors and it pulled them in so so you were doing student onboarding student enrollment and I was doing donor acquisition And, you know, it's interesting, I didn't think of it, I I find it interesting that you went after continuing education. Uh, Is that what it was? You said you start Correct, yeah. Yeah. So so we expanded to really focus on private secondary schools. You know, higher education is such a demanding market. You know, it's an expensive sale to work with the biggest universities. And, you know, for me, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand that. I didn't appreciate that going in. And, um, you know, private secondary schools, are they're less challenging, less demanding? They still raise a lot of money, um, you know. So it is. So I had to kind of carve out a different seg, you know, segment than than I expected to, as well. You know, in that whole in that whole space, it, it, it you know. And I think I think a lot of it, some of it, comes down to just understanding who that audience is. You know, who who are you selling to, and how challenging is that sale going to be?
1: What What I find interesting about what you just said is. Um... You know, people talk about pivoting, you know, or getting to plan B. And 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 I buy that, but like if you really pivot or it's truly a plan B, plan B, that's a that's a big change. And a lot of the work you've done is not necessarily applicable or useful. What you did, I don't think you pivoted. I think you just sort of adjusted a little bit, you know, that's you kind of like made a small, you know, trim here, focus there, and 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 then you kind of found your niche. Correct. And,
0: um, I think that's important yeah that, that, i think that's a good point I, I maybe use that term too casually because the, because you're right it, it the product was the same the you know everything really was the same and then we continue we, we did eventually start selling to you know, big universities and uh, you know uh, well universities of, of all sizes really but um you know but it, it, we had to make those adjustments in order to get the initial sales and to really get the initial revenue up. And, cause, cause early, you know, early, early on, it was really challenging to sell into those big universities. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. So um, when you said early on that you didn't do your due diligence exactly as much as you could have, were you just excited about the opportunity? Yeah. You're flattered. You wanted to do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And probably a bit of hubris too. you know like oh I can everything's easy and then you and then you realize nothing's easy (laughs) literally
0: nothing is easy nothing is easy so So are you um I'm sure there are things you could you might have done differently but are you glad you had that experience with IntelliWorks
1: oh my god yeah absolutely I mean I think that's a that's a theme right is yeah good, bad, or otherwise, make sure you take something from every experience and learn from it. And and like I said, I learned so much from that. And honestly, it's some of the work, it's some of my proudest work. Mm. Not because it was the most elegant necessarily, whatever, but like we figured it out. You know, we gritted our way through. I don't think it always looked pretty and um, and, and like it was gonna turn out well, but the fact that we figured that out gives you a lot of confidence over time. Uh, and a perspective on like what you know, where are we? Is this good, bad, or otherwise? And it's just yes, the experience was inc- and it was a perfect experience as a complement to what Blackboard was.
0: So one of the other things I really like about what you've said, you've said this a couple in a couple different ways. So you know, you you had, and I can't remember the term you used, uh, maybe a little controversial. That you had a, a young, a, a, what was it, a youth. Um, a youth,
1: a youth movement, which you probably can't movement. say, but we're yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. going so, for people that were less expensive
0: on us. Yeah, well, exactly. But but what I like about that is you've got to, you, you know, you understand your circumstances and then you had a strategy to deal with it, you know, and the strategy led you to the right workforce, that sort of thing. Um, You know, and, and I think, and and then you also said that as the, you know, as you're assessing the product and your, your overall growth plan, you then had a strategy for making yourself bigger, making yourself a thorn in the side of, you know, the both the biggest competitor, but also the biggest uh, potential acquirer potentially. Um, so it sounds like you've had some, you know, you you take a very strategic focus as you're leading the companies. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: I mean, I, the, the term I often use is just intention, like yeah. just okay. a strategic, maybe, maybe not, but just like, Whatever you do, have a reason. Yeah, and and because and, the, there's too few resources, not enough time, infinite possibilities, and I've just learned, particularly in IntelliWorks, I just learned like, you gotta have a reason for everything you do. Yeah, and and that that's hard in fast moving in fast moving industries. So whether or not that's strategic, I think we can debate. But but I think really just having a a purpose and an intention helps a lot.
0: So a lot of people are very intrigued by acquisitions and how you go about getting a company positioned for an acquisition. Uh, Obviously, you've been through that multiple times. Can you talk about the Hobson's acquisition, how that kind of came about?
1: Yeah, well, I I think I mentioned before, we we just started competing well. I I think three things happened. One, we started competing well. And I think that's what sort it of got us on the radar screens of a few different players. And, and you know, I think that was step one. But even before we could do that, we totally rebuilt the product. We replatformed the business and we put a really nice UI on the, on the product. And, and I, if we had not done that, I don't think we would have been nearly as attractive of a candidate. So that was work that was slow and expensive degree at a time when we weren't necessarily generating too, too much revenue, but it was, it was the right thing to do. And it put us in a really good position later on. Mm-hmm. And then much, much more tactically, uh, we just developed some important relationships. I mean, like I intentionally, and at one point got myself on a panel, where I knew some of our biggest competitors were also gonna be speaking, I begged to get on it. I was like, please let me get on it. And, and they, I, th- I think those those CEOs is probably the 12th thing in the day that they did. It was the single thing that day that I did. I mean, I was so over prepped for that panel because it was really important, I felt, to position us as a thought leader and yeah. having a really tight grip on our business. And, and so that's just tactical sort of, you know transaction management or or you know demand creation um but we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't done the hard work previously of really building the product yeah. and then becoming more competitive
0: yeah yeah so so hobson's acquired IntelliWorks. you joined IntelliWorks for or i'm sorry you joined hobson's for a little while i think you were president of their higher ed division um yeah. how how was that
1: it was awesome um it was awesome particularly after kind of some somewhat recurring like near-death experiences in a startup, you know, <laughs> right. to just be able to say, okay, yeah. you know, we're not going to go out of business. You know, uh I don't actually have to carry the booth to the trade show. You know, it's just like nice. A- and it was a it was a really good business and an interesting time with lots of really good people as well. And so it was great. It was actually a lot more like my experience later at Blackboard. Hmm. So that was sort of an an environment I was quite used to. But so I stayed there for two years. I, I really felt um, I felt good about the whole transaction and about the business, and I wanted to not sort of just jump ship quickly. I really wanted to be there for a while and make sure that the team was taken care of, and the products was taken care of, and the customers were taken care of. And I felt, you know, that was done. But I wanted to go early stage again, and I wanted to be a CEO again. So that's why I left. Yeah. Two years. Two, I was there for two years, and then I and then I. Went to Board Effect, which you you mentioned, and that was an amazing
0: experience. So, and what was the Board Effect product? What was that all about?
1: Yeah, so Board Effect was an awesome, quirky little company. It had been a mom and pop, and Level Equity uh, had invested in it in the summer of 2013. Uh, it was one of their very first investments. And it was um, software for boards of directors. So it's basically it was a, what they called a board portal, which even then seemed like a, a, an anachronistic name, but um, but it was software for boards of directors to compile their board books, take okay. votes, distribute them, and manage their meetings and so forth. And Board Effect in particular had carved out a niche with nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So that that seems like it's sort of a niche of a niche, but but when you actually look at it. Boards of nonprofits of hospitals of government agencies yeah. of universities of associations of foundations they're big yeah. they're big and 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 they're run by their boards and it's really important and it's really really sticky and that was it was an amazing business it was an amazing time and um and it actually sort of pointed the way for everything I've done since
0: interesting interesting so um I, and I, it sounds like you did more due diligence on it. You know, you knew, (laughs) yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, It was funny.
1: Like there were a lot of people at Hobson's and elsewhere that were like, wait, it was, they had a bad website. It was just, it was, I think it was like 12 people when I joined and people were like, what, Wait, why are you doing that? I was like, I really believe in this thing. And I believed in the investors. I thought Ben Levin from level equity, Sarah summer. I was just like, these guys are awesome. I knew I wanted to try to broaden my industry focus beyond edtech. That was important for me. And I thought this business had a lot of potential. And I really thought if I do a good job with these investors, I'll have a lot more opportunity open up mm-hmm. in the future. And it was another opportunity to go take an early stage business and, and really try to mold it <laughs> and try to learn from some of my prior mistakes. And so, so, yeah, it was awesome. I joined it in February of 2014. We grew a lot. I was under $3 million in ARR when I joined. We grew a lot over over three years. And then again, got bought by our biggest competitor, Diligent Corporation.
0: Wow. So what was the biggest, uh, I guess, uh, factor in growth after you joined?
1: It's a, it's a little bit of a, of a repeating story, so forgive me, but it was... It was some of the same stuff. It was it was getting really really focused on like exactly what is our value proposition and what are the key segments that we're going after and how do we prioritize them and how do we articulate the value prop specifically to that segment versus that segment versus that segment.
0: Okay.
1: So we focused a lot on that. Uh, we completely rebuilt the product again.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, it
1: was a really deep, rich, functional product, but it was it had been it had been built kind of on an ad hoc basis overall over like a. Five or six or seven-year period. It was hard to hire developers. It was hard to support. The UI was pretty janky, um, and so we focused a lot on that. And we really spent a lot of time building a world-class leadership team and specifically a really good go-to-market function. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and so when we sort of put all those things together, and it took a while, like it took a while. The business we actually had to sort of take a step backwards. Business was doing well. And I was like, look, I did a whole listening tour and tried to spend the first 90 days just learning and so forth. And my my takeaway was this business has been doing really well, but it's not poised for future growth. Like we're at the end of this growth curve. We need to now make a bunch of investments if we want to continue investing, sorry, continue growing. And um, and that just took time and energy and cost. And we sort of slowed down for a little bit. And there was, there was a moment there where a level was kind of going like, it's going to tick back up, you know, and then, and then it really, it really did. And that was awesome.
0: And so when you're talking about those investments for that, for future growth, are we talking about additional features, a different additional products, you know, thing? Uh,
1: Yeah, honestly. Yes, for sure. For sure. It was, it was about features, but not exclusively by any means. It was more about, so we, we actually, we engaged an outside firm, an excellent firm, and we spent what for us was a lot of money at the time doing a packaging and pricing study because we were sort of mashing together features in a way that didn't necessarily make total sense to the market and didn't allow us to really optimize long-term revenue. And so we just, again, being intentional about that, which was not about features. That was about how exactly do you present yourself similarly the ui like that was not about features per se it was just about making the solution a lot easier to use which drove better adoption which you know drove higher renewals and um you know investments in people we spent we we really did we we started to build the team we focused a lot on professional development um so more so that when i talk about investments than than like hey we're going to go build x feature now The other thing I'll say, and again, this is something that we really focus a lot of time and energy on still with all of our lock eight businesses is less about features and more about your your product vision and your product framework. And and really what I mean by your product framework is like, okay, product vision, I think everybody kind of gets like, this is the the full expression. This is where we want to see it going. Let's be really clear and articulate about what that is. And then you've got a roadmap. The problem is how do you connect those things? And there's way more things that you need to do, features to develop and functions to to build into the solution than you have time for. So how do you prioritize? That's where the product framework comes in. It's basically the Rosetta Stone. It's your translation layer that allows you to say, this is how we think about the product. This is how our customers work. And if they work this way, that will allow us to do a much more dispassionate, rational job of figuring out what's gonna matter most to them and satisfy their needs and help us like not get into shouting matches over what features we should develop and like really building out that product framework. And then sort of the roadmaps and the features start to kind of take care of themselves.
0: Very interesting. Now you made a comment that I wanna uh, jump on. You said that your experience here at Board Effect, it paved the way. For a lot of what you've done since. And I think I've got an idea of what you meant, but why, why don't you talk to that? What, what, what does that mean exactly?
1: Well, I, I would say it in, in, in a few ways. Um, one is I mentioned level equity, and I've been working with them ever since. So that, mm-hmm. that's a relationship that has carried on. And so I think that's, that's true. The other is just, you know, I've talked about some frameworks and some intentionality and so mm-hmm. forth. And a lot of that was what we did at Board Effect. And it really helped us take a business that was kind of subscale and really help it scale in a way that wasn't hair on fire, helter skelter. And those are the same types of frameworks that we try to use with each one of our portfolio companies in lock eight, because we've just seen that it works. Now, I'm not using the term playbook. You probably hear the term playbook a lot. I don't like that term. That makes it sort of seem like color by numbers. It makes it seem really rote. It's not. It's, it's the world is too complex. Every one of these businesses is, is really, really um, sophisticated and, and, and complicated. And so I don't believe in, in, in a playbook, but what I do believe in is there's a core set of disciplines that commonly SaaS businesses need to be good at, and you need to develop that DNA in each of these businesses. And that's really what I'm trying to trying to emphasize here
0: okay so you kind of started refining those ideas and that framework and you know you you really did a lot of that refining while you were at board effect and that has carried over now to what you're doing at lock eight
1: completely so and and so just to fast forward a little bit um we exited uh board effect they didn't need another ceo at the the acquirer and so i was Mm. told that i was welcome to sort of head off which was awesome um and level approached me to help them with another one of their businesses which for various reasons i was like you know what i'd love to help but i I don't really want to become your full-time ceo and that's where this really took root because What what we did there was we said, okay, let's identify who the CEO is going to be. It actually ended up being a gentleman named Doug Feed, who was the CFO. Um, And I was like, look, we'll go in and we'll try to really do a strategic reset of the business, and we'll focus on all where we need to prioritize, and I will work directly with the leadership team and with that person in particular, and then over time, I'll sort of step, step away. And that's exactly what happened.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: and it was that experience where we did so many of the same things at Board Effect, but where I was thinking about it not from a perspective of I'm going to be leading this business forever, but rather, you know, can we engage in a in a lighter touch way, and really empower an executive to go execute, you know, what what we agree via our our collective efforts and collective analysis, and what we found was yes. And wow, this really actually scales. And once that happened, that's when the light bulb went on for me with Lock8, where I was like, you know what? I don't want another CEO job. I actually want to go start a business where we do that over and over and over and help other CEOs and other leadership teams be successful and scale and develop teams and and develop their skills and just accelerate the lessons learned. So
0: super fun. Very cool. And so you and I spoke when, I think when you were, just starting lock eight, maybe, or may, maybe, you know what, I can't remember exactly where it was, where you were in, in, the, uh, in the process, but w- what year approximately did lock eight come to be?
1: Beginning of 20, well, I guess I was kind of thinking about it um, starting in 2018, but okay. really um, officially kind of like, Hey, we're going to do this. This is going to happen was beginning of 2019. So we just, <laughs> we're just a little bit um, beyond three
0: years. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, so, Approximately three years. So, it, what, what did it re, what did it require to get off the ground? You know, did you go out and you got capital from other people? Did you, you know, what, what what did you need to to get the the company Lock Eight put together?
1: Yes, capital eventually, but way before that, it was what exactly are we trying to do, and yeah. what, what makes us think we're going to be any good at it, and you know, and 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 with whom, and and basically, what we want, what we said was there's a lot of good software companies that have products that customers really like, like many of the businesses that I had been in previously, but where they just haven't quite figured out how to scale. And with, you know, a little bit of energy and, and focus and prioritization, they can really unlock their full potential. That was sort of the, the driving initial idea. And so the thought was, let's go find a business that that meets a bunch of these criteria. So we had to get really clear on what criteria were we looking for. And for us, the big thing was we're willing to make a lot of concessions in a lot of areas, but like gross dollar retention, we want that to be really high. We want this to be a sticky product mm-hmm. because when you have that, you have Real nice margin for safety. You can try a lot of things and you know you're not going to be sort of, you know, in a in a death spiral. And so we we found a really great business in Q2 2019. And um with, with found two founders, two technical founders, really good on the product side, a lot less on the go-to-market side, and they were ready to step away. They had been at it for close to 15 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a good fit. We really hit it off. It was a good fit. And so it was at that point, Will, <clears throat> that we went and got capital. So mm-hmm. what I learned was like, yeah, you can go try to raise capital. And many people have done that successfully. Probably not people with my background. Probably not people who came up as operators. Mm. Like, hey, I'm just going to go raise X million dollars you know, on this idea. I think that would have been really hard. Whereas, hey, we've got this company, and this is what we're going to do with it. Uh, that actually ended up making um, – Raising capital easier, and the relationships that I mentioned. So Level Equity was super supportive. Radiant Capital, with whom I had developed a really strong working relationship, was was really uh, supportive as well as uh, Accolade Partners, which is a fund of funds that had invested in each of those businesses, each of Level and Radiant. So I went to them and uh, and said, "Hey, would you would you fund this?" And, and I was surprised to learn that yes not only would they fund that but actually they were excited about the strategy to do it more than once and so we actually ended up raising a little mini uh pool of capital to go do this and we've now acquired four businesses uh, with that pool of capital and then we're now in the process hopefully soon of closing our, our second uh pool of capital and expanding it and just continue to expand our our scope and operation
0: very cool. And so, and actually that was something that I kind of missed uh, that you're not investing in companies as much as you're acquiring them. Correct. Correct.
1: Yeah, our, our, our approach is they're small businesses to start with, right? They're between 2 million and 10 million recurring revenue, probably closer to sort of 2 and 5, um, number one. And number two, it's our intent to really engage with them in a very collaborative, very intensive way. And therefore, in order to make that work, like owning 5, 10, 15, 20% makes no sense. Like it does, the economics don't work and you also don't have the sort of mandate, I suppose, or the permission right. to the license to really make the kind of changes that we would want to make. So very quickly we realized, no, these are these are control deals. These are majority deals as they call them. These are acquisitions, as you said. Now, what we often found, find is the founders are, they're sort of ready to step aside in many cases. And and, and we always bring in a new new uh, leader, a new CEO. And we can talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but they're often still excited about the business. And so one of the things that we do is we say, look, we're going to be a really good home for your business. We're going to invest in the co- customers and the product and, and so forth. We're, we're not doing financial engineering. We're investing in this to grow. Um, but we also let them roll their equity. So if they're like, hey, I'd like mm-hmm. to retain a portion of it because I'm excited about what you're going to do with it and think that it will be worth more later. We're, we're happy to let them do that. And I think that's a good, that tends to resonate.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it would. I think that's, you know, keeping that kind of a stakeholder involved is, you know, I think if, if if it's an option, I think that sounds like it would be a huge value add probably.
1: Hope so. I, mean, yeah. I, th- I think, <laughs> I think so. I
0: think yeah. So. so, um. so when, so, you're in a position then where you're picking CEOs on a regular basis. So what, what do you look for as you're, I mean, you've already described a qu- quite a bit, but, but what, what's your process rather when you're thinking about getting a, bringing on a new CEO?
1: Yeah, so landing all these planes at once is hard. Let me say the timing is hard. Like we you find a business that you're excited about, they like you, like we're gonna close this and then you wanna move quickly to get that done to then have the right person ready to step in is like, just the timing can be difficult. And what it means Will, is, you really wanna be building a bench. We really wanna be, we wanna have a roster of people that are excited about this model, this opportunity, and we've developed these relationships so that we're not starting from afresh. You know, hey, we just found a business, like let's spin up a recruit. Now we do actually have a great recruiter with whom we work um, and we do do that as well, but, um, but really, we try to have these relationships in place. And by the way, just as I said, two of our CEOs are actually people that we recruited, one right out of college, one from early, uh, early career at IntelliWorks. So what we talked about way, yeah. way back when. So, you know, this, the world is small. And life yeah, is long, is. But, um Anyway, so so that's our process we're pretty intensive. We have the person meet with lots of folks, lots of the different stakeholders, our investors, our team, the team of the business itself, the founders, like we just think it's really important for everybody to just sort of say, is this a good fit? We give those person, that person access to our existing CEOs so they can find out what it's like, you know, to be a, to be a lock eight CEO. We do, we do extensive reference calls. One of the other things we do is we, we, We do do diagnostics, and I've written blog posts about this. We actually have our CEOs take these diagnostics with psychologists and and do sort of an intensive battery of these assessments, not to aid in the selection, but rather post-selection, so that it can be a real developmental learning experience so that right out of the gate, everybody's understanding of, like, here are the real strengths, here are maybe the areas of weaknesses. How can we work together to make sure we've got you know, all the processes, systems, and people in place to to try to put us in the best, put that person and us in general in the in the best position to succeed. And then finally, um, we create a YPO-esque forum. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but a very, very tight-knit um, cohort of, of CEOs among our CEOs. And they manage this relationship among themselves, and we are out of it. We don't like they're not a, they tell us nothing but they're not allowed to tell us anything. We don't want to know anything. We want them to help one another and have that be a safe space for them ah, to really do peer to peer learning.
0: Very interesting. And great. Yeah, or yeah very, very interesting. Now, so one of the um, challenges sometimes with the traditional venture capital model is there's there are these timelines of the fu- you know the funds are on a timeline so they want to get investments that are going to mature at a certain point. And I mean, obviously everyone's going to want their investment to mature, but, but sometimes the, the timeline can be a little arbitrary, or at least that's what the, the feeling is. What's your timeline when you're making an investment or an yeah. acquisition, really?
1: Yeah. You, you, you kind of need to have a timeline just so that people have an understanding of what are you trying yeah. to do? Sure. You know, if you're kind of like, oh, we take it, <laughs> we just do whatever. It's like, that's not really super confidence inspiring. Yeah. So we do have a, a hold period, a stated hold period, which is five years per company. And we have a very sort of, not rigid at all, but like a, 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 a um, clear idea of like, this is what we think should happen over the course of that, you know, in, right. in each year. Um, number one, it's obsolete the moment you set it in place, like, you know, we're like off schedule out of the gate. So let's just yeah. be clear about that. I think the thing that's a little bit different about what we do is number one, we're, we're not in a hurry. And, and I think the reason is because we're not sort of going in with the venture model that you talked about, which right. is like, hey, we're going to pay some crazy valuation with an expectation of hyper growth. And if we don't achieve that, it's going to be a big problem. And we're going to spend toward that growth. And if it doesn't happen, we're burning. And we don't do that. So we just have more time yeah. to try to, in a very deliberate manner, understand the market and the opportunity. And so we really try to take the first year to understand the core offering and the market and make sure that we're articulating in a way that resonates before we really start investing a ton in demand generation and marketing and so forth. And we also take that first year to try to build out the leadership team. It takes a year, it takes more, it takes 18 months to really build out a leadership team.
0: It's amazing how much, I mean, how much time and care it takes to do something like that. But I I mean, I I have no trouble believing that at all. I mean, I think to, to do it right, it is gonna take a long time.
1: Yeah, and groups just, I mean, the old saying goes, they need to, what is it they need to, um, groups need to form, storm, norm, perform. perform. Like, it just takes a while to go through that that process.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, That that's right. I mean, for, for me, I, one of the things that really excites me is building high performance teams. So I think about that model you just went through a lot. And you know, every time a new team member joins, you basically start over, and you're 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 going to go through storming again. You know, you you know, and uh, it's going to be a a process to get to the to the performance phase. For sure. So, Um, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, well, I I was just going to say so. Um, and I'm not sure if this is something you you are prepared to, to talk about, but what is the return you're hoping to get off of when you're, as you're, as you're acquiring a company? Are you, is that something that's the same generally, you know, you've got a general idea or or are you flexible in terms of what whatever the opportunity is, you know, available?
1: As, as great a possible return as you can. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's a little bit t- tough to talk about numbers. I mean, really what we're hoping to do is first of all, build good businesses that are just stable, profitable and have an ability to sustain growth this is not like a hey like pump it up and you know get rid of it so so i I should just really talk about that's that's and we feel like if you do that particularly as we enter into a little bit less frothy market than we have been in we think that's really the key toward driving good returns yeah the other thing is we hope and we believe that with the approach that I just described and our real focus on operations that we are de-risking these business. And so what I will say is, you know, that the typical venture model or the prototypical venture model is, Hey, if you have some home run, you have a home run or two, like it doesn't matter if you have some zeros, yeah. it doesn't matter if you have a bunch of strikeouts because the math all works to which I always say, like, I guess it works in the macro, but it doesn't work for the people who are in the company, you know, operators yeah. in the companies that struck out, like that's not great. And our goal is never, never. Yeah. Have that happen. Just, and so, yeah, so far, so
0: good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you were about, were you, were you about to, was there something else you wanted to, another path you wanted to go down a moment ago? You know,
1: I was just going to say you had asked me first about sort of what do we look for? And then you said, what's your process? And I think I talked about process of CEOs. In terms of what we look for, we did talk about it a little bit, but like it's, and I've written, again, I've yeah. written a couple of things about this, but approachability, number one. Coachability number one. Like the CEO job is humbling. It's really hard. Um, and no role that you have really prepares you for it. Maybe general manager kind of sort of you have PL experience, but like no, no role does. So you you gotta be in a learning mindset and a and you know, committed to that coming in. So coachability, humility, I just think is like the thing. Number one. Uh, time management because, you know, there's just way more to do than you can possibly do. And if you're not careful, you run yourself ragged and then you're no good to anybody. So that's, you know, sort of discipline, time management, the ability to walk away like that's that's really important. And then finally, just like amazing communication skills, because what I believe is CEO is like the ultimate cross-functional role, specifically where you just have a really diverse set of stakeholders. I mean, you have investors that care about, a, a a basket of things. You've got employees that care about a different basket of things, and even within that group, it's it's widely varied. You know, you've got customers, you've got partners, you've got the market that are not customers yet, but that you want to have become customers. Like, and understanding how to have one message that isn't different for everybody, but one message, but really being able to understand how to communicate that in a way that resonates with each of them, speak their love languages, so to speak, and vice versa, be in constant listening mode. It's really hard, man. That's what we look for.
0: So I've got a couple more questions for you. So how much work is it to, uh, to buy uh, a company like the type that you're looking for, you know, and and where I'm going with that is, could you do it, could you get a hundred of them tomorrow if, if you had a hundred opportunities, you know, <laughs> or or is there a certain amount of time that you put in because you've got a framework, you've got, you know, you know, it's not, I, I assume it's really not just something where you can just kind of, uh, you know, take as many as, as show up.
1: Yeah, well, like I said before, everything's hard. <laughs> Nothing's yeah. easy. So, so we need to remember that. Also, having done a fair bit of M&A at Blackboard and in other places, what I've come to appreciate is it doesn't matter whether it's a $10 million acquisition or a hundred million million dollar acquisition. Like it's, it's, it's not exactly the same amount of work, but it's comparable. Mm -hmm. And, and so therefore it's not infinite. Now, what, what people often think is like, Oh, is, is your constraining variable that, you know, getting deals done no is your constraining variable capital not really doesn't seem that way there's a lot of capital uh is your constraining variable your model it's kind of like not really so far the constraining variable is finding finding deals is there's a lot of companies that fit the criteria i described but finding the exact match where i like you and you like me and i'm ready and we're ready and you know it's just you know so far we're still building those muscles. I think we've gotten a lot better at it, but it's, but I think that's the, so could you do a once? Like, sure, eventually, but like anything, you got to work up to it.
0: Well, and that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think finding those, those opportunities and that actually gets to my other question on this is um, I feel like this, how unique is lock eight? I mean, I mean, is it, I mean, there. you know, they they're really, I mean, I imagine there must be some other uh, you know, companies that may have a similar model and not, not a similar framework necessarily, but they're they're investing or acquiring companies at, at a certain scale and all that. But it's not the most common, um, you know, approach to acquire these types of companies, I think.
1: Yeah, um, I'm going to be a little all over the map on this. On, the, on, on one hand, like, yeah, we are truly unique. There is no one yeah. like us, you know? We'd like to think that then again and this is only accelerated when i talk to people and i explain you know who we are and what we do they're like oh you're just like this and, and inevitably they're coming up with a name that i didn't hear i didn't know before I, you know so so we are like i think a lot of people are you know sort of doing this thing in many different ways and mm. and with lots of similarities now we, we do think we're somewhat unique in a few ways one i think we look for things that are a little bit different than than Others. We're not necessarily looking for like pinning the meter on growth. And I think that's largely mm. what, you know, what, what a lot of people look for. Um, so in terms of what we look for, you know, to some of the ways that we, we transact, which I mentioned a moment ago, um, really, I think where we're unique is kind of our operating DNA. You know, we didn't, well, we, we now have built out our team such that we have some real um, people with true investor backgrounds and experience that, which I didn't bring Previously, and we also have a lot of expertise—just pure operators, people that yeah. grew up in SaaS businesses—and that's sort of the lens that they bring. And I think when you put all those things together, we hope we're unique.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think you, I think you guys are pretty unique. Um, you know, um, and and you know, I think um, I, I think that I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I, I think that. Frankly, you do add a ton of value with you know people. You know when you're giving advice to people who are in business. I mean, you've been through a lot of different things, so it's not hard to believe nice. that this is a that you know that this is a really good model. Appreciate that, thank you. So, um, as we're wrapping up here, what other topics do you, Was there anything that you wanted to to talk about or wanted to to plug before we, uh, you know, as as we kind of get towards the end of the show?
1: You know, I would just sort of re-highlight what I said before, which is like, part of what makes these early stage SaaS businesses, and being a CEO, being a leader in general, what makes it so interesting is infinite set of outcomes, which means like, it can be good. It okay. can be not as good. It can get rough. It can be amazing. Um As I've gained perspective, having now done it for a while, what I've come to really believe and appreciate is just like, learning opportunities are insane and if you can appreciate that and really try to harness that like it sounds a little cliche maybe or pollyanna but i believe it it's just there's so much to be learned and it's only accelerating and that um that's humbling and it's and it's and it's inspiring and it's really energizing.
0: i i believe you know i believe it too and for me the thing that i've noticed and this doesn't really apply just to ceos at all but you know it, what i've noticed is it, timeline is one of the things that determines whether somebody's going to have a good experience or not you know if they're working on a 3 month timeline and they know they can only afford you know to 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 do an, to take an opportunity for 3 months and if it doesn't pay off in that time period then they're going to have to abandon it and do something else um, that's a ter- that's a bad scenario you know you get somebody who you know has a 24 month time frame or a 5 year time frame <laughs> And that gives you the freedom to really think clearly and relax and, you know, and, uh, you know, and and do your work in a way that that is going to have that long term payoff.
1: Uh, That's so well said and so true. Well, I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on the show here. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and um, I know that people are going to really benefit from, from listening to this. And, uh, you know, and also, as I was doing a little background from preparation, I did come across your blog posts, so I think I want to put some links to that in the show notes. Um, and if, if there's any way you want people to get in touch with you or anything like that, we can put that in as well.
1: Please do. Uh, Please, anybody that's interested in connecting, please do. LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, email, put it all on there.
0: All right. we'll 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 put it in there. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure people are going to really benefit from this. So thank you again, Todd. This has been great. And I wish you all the best with Lock8.
1: Thanks so much, Will.